0: Welcome to Table Talk, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the dynamic and exciting restaurant world. We sit down with industry leaders as they share best practices, highlight smart solutions, and discuss strategies for growth, ultimately helping food service operators learn how to affect positive change and grow their business. Now, here is your host, editor and publisher of Food Service and Hospitality Magazine, Rosanna Kyra. Today, my guest on Table Talk is Scott Bellhouse. Scott has been engaging leaders for some of Canada's most respected hospitality organizations since he founded Bellhouse Hospitality, formerly Profile Hospitality Group, in 2011. With a focus on recruitment for senior leadership searches, Scott brings more than 20 years of restaurant operations expertise in major Canadian cities, including Vancouver, Winnipeg, and Toronto, for notable brands such as Oliver and Bonacini and Earl's. During his decade long tenure at OMB, Scott played a pivotal role as director of operations in the opening of five new restaurant locations, and he mentored dozens of promising individuals into management roles. Tapping into his passion for advising and teaching, Scott provides guidance to the Bellhouse team and has taught leadership courses at George Brown College and guest lectured at the University of Guelph. Good morning, Scott, and welcome to Table.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, my pleasure. How are you doing? How's life on the West Coast?
1: Well, the weather is good. It's uh, January. It's early January, and it's a plus nine degrees and reasonably dry. So we'll take it.
0: That sounds great. Surprisingly, we're actually pretty mild in Toronto too, and there's no snow. So I guess that's all about climate change. But that's another topic for another day. It is so. Thanks for joining me, Scott. I know you're busy, and and I know you have a lot on the go, um, so I really do appreciate you making time in your schedule. Um, As I mentioned in in your introduction, um, you've been in the hospitality industry for many, many years, and you've worked both in operations and as a recruiter. Um, I'd love to hear how you got started in the industry. I think everybody's trajectory is so unique and Um, can teach a lot of others, too, in terms of, you know, what twists and turns life can take. So why don't we start uh, with that?
1: Well, interestingly enough, I grew up in Ontario. I grew up in in Brantford. uh, And uh, when I was about, you know, about 16, 17 years old, my first job actually was making pizzas at a family-run pizza place in Brantford. That was my first uh, foray into the hospitality industry, which, interestingly enough, back in those days... uh, when I got paid, I was paid cash at the end of my shift, so that was an wow. interesting that was an interesting way to to, to jump into the uh, to the restaurant uh, business. Um, and then in, in 1993, uh, I moved to Vancouver with a friend of mine. We drove out from Ontario, decided we were going to do something different after you know after school, and uh, I got my uh, first serving job or real serving job at Earls on Robson Street, and so I started with Earls in '93. Uh, and worked with Earls for the better part of seven years. and in about 1997 I was able to work my way from a server t- in, in about a four- year span into a GM role with Earl's, actually interestingly enough in Winnipeg. Um, and in 2000, um, having been gone for about seven years, thought well it's time to go back. my family uh, were in, in the sort of GTA and I moved back in 2000, taking a leadership role, uh, someone that we both know well, Bruce McAdams, hired me at OMB as a as a manager at Jump, and I reported to him. And over the next decade, I worked uh, my way into a director role uh, in, before leaving in 2000 and started my recruitment company in 2011.
0: So you've really come in from the ground up, which actually gives you a great perspective um, in, in terms of what you're doing today. It gives you a real um, understanding, I, th- I think, of some of the key issues that employees are looking for, but also employers are are uh, focusing on. So, so that's wonderful. Um, now, I know that your company's gone through a recent rebranding uh, from Profile Hospitality into Bellhouse. Maybe you can just touch on that a little bit.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, the, I think we, you and I have had these discussions uh, when we've had the opportunity to talk. But the pandemic was immensely challenging time for the hospitality industry in general, and. You know, for us especially, we ended up having to uh, lay off 90% of our staff. So during that time, we needed to figure out how to best serve our clients going forward when uh, business did come back and we had uh, clients to serve. But so we decided that we were going to effectively partner with clients that we need. That we needed to be clear about what our brand was and how we were going to be going forward. Now, having started the company in 2011, I've always been at the forefront of the company and, and you know worked not only as a business owner, uh, but as a recruiter. And and what we realized over the you know over the pandemic is, and we already knew this, but recruitment is a relationship business. We wanted to showcase. What our competitive advantage was, and our network of relationships and our service was really going to be the ones that stood out, and so we focused on that. And I remember uh, Shannon always telling me, um, you know, people know you; they don't necessarily know the profile name. They know people know who you are versus the, the name. So that was one of the catalysts to decide to change it to Bellhouse Hospitality versus Profile and, and connect it really closely with my with with me and in my name. Mm-hmm. So going forward, our focus. You know, now and in the future is really focusing on cultivating long-term relationships with clients and candidates. And that's really what's worked well for us. Uh, we've made the move to partner with ethical hospitality organizations that really prioritize employee well-being and development. Because as you, as as you know, I mean, we really saw a lot of cracks over the pandemic. So we really wanted to make sure that we understood who we were and who we were going to partner with going forward. Uh, and that's what we've done. And so far it's been, it's it's worked out quite well.
0: So I guess the pandemic was your impetus for for doing this like everybody else it gave you a chance to re-examine what you were doing and how you were doing it and, and change perhaps some of the parameters of of how you were approaching things which um, is probably a healthy thing at the best of times anyway for for most companies
1: yeah I mean it was it was the toughest I mean I've been doing this. For thirty plus years, I've been. In, that's all I've ever done in the hospitality industry. And I, that was the toughest time I've ever seen for people that I knew, and in being in recruitment, people I didn't know that I talked to. And so it was really important to figure out who we were and what type of clients uh, we wanted to work with and candidates going forward, so that we could have the best possible outcomes for everybody.
0: Sounds great. So Scott, recruitment and retention are age-old issues in this industry. I mean, I've been covering this industry for more years than I'd like to admit, and I can't remember a time when labor shortages didn't factor into the conversation. I mean, way back to the early 80s, there was always talk about labor shortages. Um, but as you mentioned, I think the pandemic exposed a lot of cracks and there was a major exodus of people going, you know, coming out, out of the industry. How is recruitment and retention different today from the issues that it presented in the past? Because as I said, it's always been there. But this seems so much more intense than it's ever been. And um, it speaks to a lot of changes in terms of how people view their jobs. Um, so how, how do you see that being different today?
1: Well, uh, you know, it's interesting you say that. It's like if you go back 20, 30 years, for people, would people would often see hospitality, whether you're in an hourly role or in a leadership role, as kind of a fallback position, right? So there was always opportunities since, you know, you and I've been in the working world that you could, there was always opportunities and there was always a need for people in, in the hospitality sector, hotels, restaurants, food, and beverage. But what happened with the pandemic is the layoff cycles, and it certainly was way worse in Ontario than it was up here in BC. There was way more lockdowns, as you know, there, that was a, a more of a consistent issue uh, in Ontario than here. But the layoff cycles for hospitality workers, what they went through over a two-year period really just threw them for a loop. I mean, most of these people are used to working 50 plus hours a week. You know, now they had extended time at home to really think about what their options were going to be and what their life trajectory was going to be going forward, because there was no consistency or stability around their employment. So today's shortages are different because people left the industry because they needed uninterrupted employment to pay the bills. CERB clearly wasn't paying enough, especially for hospitality staff working or surviving mainly on tips. So once they found studies in similar, you know, paying employment, it probably was less. Uh, Often that new employment came with better hours, which, you know, frankly, isn't surprising. Um, And they just haven't come back. Uh, They had enough time away to adjust their lifestyles to the new pay or maybe a little less money, but the hours offset and the hours they were are working now or were working, uh, are, are, are better now. So they've, they've just adjusted their lifestyles accordingly. So, so many people, um, told me during the layoffs that they were able to spend more time with their family, more time with their friends, um, and what they normally wouldn't do, you know, and I can relate to that, you know, working nights, weekends, holidays, and it was really life-changing for them. So they just said, you know what, um, the the benefits or they waited out and said, it's, it's better just to to stay, to stay away, at least in a full-time capacity.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Some people have gone back in a part-time capacity perhaps, but they have that flexibility. So I'll give you an example. So having work, you know, working from home over the pandemic and having a home office, I would watch delivery people, you know, because everybody was having packages delivered from Amazon or or whatever. And and so occasionally I would meet these, these drivers at the door and, and some of them were young Young people. And I would, you know, so what I learned was a couple, a couple of them at least that I remember were cooks or sous chefs or, or junior sous chefs. So think about it this way it's like if, if a, a sous chef is making 50, 50 grand or $50,000 a year working 50, 60 hours a week, and now they can go and get a job driving an Amazon truck working Monday to Friday or Tuesday to Saturday during the day in the summertime, you know, with nice weather, they can listen to some music. And kind of work on their own schedule. Um, a lot of some people I knew went to Whole Foods as an example of a retailer, and they were given more flexible schedules and and just frankly a better lifestyle, and they didn't take a pay cut. So the, the struggle that the industry has to get, well, one of the struggles the industry has to get over is that employees have more options now than ever. And 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 frankly, you know, Rosanna, that's not gonna change over the next 10 years. It's not gonna get better. It's probably gonna slightly get better. the the labor market's going to get tighter now more on the leadership side than perhaps the, the entry level side, but that's just something for for companies to consider.
0: So that doesn't bode very well for operators who are looking at their um, businesses these days and are forced to cut their hours, you know, maybe not offer lunch day part anymore or reduce their number of days that they're operating. And if the situation is not going to get better for the next decade as you say, what is an operator to do? I mean, are are there alternate sources of labor that they should be looking at? I know we talk a lot about immigration being one possible solution, but of course, there's also limits on immigration and and how many immigrants can come in on a yearly basis. Um, Younger people, are, are they still interested in using or going into this industry, even in the short term, you know, during school and and, uh, you know, as, as entry-level staff, I mean, what what do you see being some of the issues that operators are going to have to deal with? Uh,
1: you know, I, I think, I mean, the world is a different, you know, in hospitality, the world is a different place than it was in, say, 19, you know, the early 90s or mid-90s when I got into the business where, and, and you know, there was leaderships, leadership opportunities and you need to work towards those. Um, I, I really think that there's, you know, there's a bunch of different ways that, you know, operators can. I mean, it depends what you're looking for. I really think with you know the immigration and the amount of people that are coming in uh, that that are immigrating to Canada, I think that the hourly ranks are probably going to be in a better situation over the next five years than say perhaps your your qualified or your 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 leaders that are on salary running uh, running businesses. So those those restaurant companies or restaurant owners have to look within. Um, They're going to have to look within their own ranks to find those people. So if you look at like a company like Earl's or, you know, and we mentioned that I I worked there for years was their mentality was this, and they trained us this when we were managers uh, or GMs was when you were interviewing a a dishwasher or or someone for a dishwashing position or someone for a, a bartending position, you were also trained to think about that person. Could they be the next supervisor? Could they be the next leader to run that restaurant or run that kitchen? And that was something that worked really well, because if you look at a company like that or like O&B, um, most of the people that are running these operations, Rosanna, came in from the ground level. That's right. So so what they did was they said, OK, you know what? We're looking for them when they aren't sure what they want to do with their life going forward in terms of a career. And we're going to show them that this can be a viable career for them. And I'm and I'm a good example of that. You know, and, and many of my colleagues that we both know mm-hmm. are also good examples of that as well. So, I so I think that you've got to look at your team when you're hiring people. Uh, you've got to look at, does this person have leadership potential? Because you can see that in an interview if you're paying attention, but you're also kind, you're keeping your eye on them when they're in those junior positions and figuring out how to create a career path for them. And that's going to be helpful. And that's going to, that's something that companies seem to have lost over the last decade.
0: And you mentioned Earls and OMB and um, not surprisingly, they're they're, I mean, among the companies that actually were able to do something right when there were in, in terms of their recruitment and retention strategies, they've always been lauded as companies that have done something right. And I'm sure you've worked with a lot of other companies through your recruitment that managed to always find good people and train them properly. What is it that, what's their secret sauce, I guess, is what I'm saying. You mentioned, you know, one of the things that Earl's did right, and that's spotting people that were able to come in at a entry-level position and then grow through the mm-hmm. ranks. They did that very well. And so has OMB, as you mentioned. What other attributes do those companies have that make them stand out as really good employers?
1: So, you know, if I look at the examples of, if, if you don't mind if I use an example like OMB, where I, where I spent the majority That's... of my operational career, you, you know, the question was like recruiting great employees, retaining them and developing them. You know, OMB... To me, Peter and Oliver's presence and leadership and vision was the defining factor in that company. There's no question, like, hands down. Um, and I'm sure I'm not the first person to tell you that. Uh, For sure. I don't know another, I don't know, you know, I, I'm, I'm 50 years old. I don't know another restaurant owner uh, that I'm aware of now or 30 years ago that led from the front and the heart like he did. He attended staff orientations. He shared a meal with brand new employees. He got buy-in from day one from the right people. But they also, you know, one of the things that I, when I, when I worked at, when I went to and I couldn't carry three plates and I didn't know anything about wine. I didn't know the difference between a Burgundy or a um, or a Bordeaux bottle. So mm-hmm. the development and the educational opportunities offered, people have to do that. So like, you know, with B, if I'm using them as an example, like WSET and ISG accreditation for wine accreditation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went on multiple trips: Italy, California, uh, the Okanagan for wine trips to education opportunities to move up around uh, in the other restaurants. Like a, you know, an example would be, you know, you you didn't go and work at, it, you know, you never hired anybody from cano- Canoe Roberts that hadn't worked for the company in a more casual setting. That was where that was a goal to work towards. So they had these goals that you could work towards, and it it really showed those people that were going to work hard and focused and had wanted to achieve. I mean, unlimited service seminars. Um, When I look back at my time uh, there as an employee, uh, boy, did Peter trust me. And he gave me a a remarkable amount of autonomy having opened those restaurants. Um, And so those are, you know, if we look back and sort of summarize, it's it's education development, um, having someone at a senior leadership level that will give you time and that really is that presence of that company. Um, and the last thing I would say that, that that companies that I work for have done really well is so you need to have a strong, positive presence in the educational system, uh, like high schools, colleges, universities. You know, at any point, I remember when I was a director, at any point at OMB, we could have up to 12 co-op students, Rosanna, and various restaurants from oh, Wells, from Ryerson, from George Brown. And often, we would see about 20%, maybe a little bit more, when they were finished their co-op, they would end up staying on in an hourly capacity beyond the co-op. And there were a bunch of them, because I'd worked for OMB for so long, that ultimately ended up going into leadership roles and in and, and salaried roles and stayed there for years.
0: And interestingly, OMB has been such a fertile, fertile ground for developing people. I mean, when you look at the industry, the number of people that came out from that system is mind boggling. So obviously, they were doing a lot of things right. But it really speaks to investing in your employees is, is what it sounds like when you're talking, Scott, about sending you on trips and educating you about wines and everything else they did. And I find that a lot of companies don't do that these days, they look at it, oh, it's it's expensive to do that, I don't have the money. Um, but that kind of investment pays dividends down the road. And, and I think that's what you're saying through, through what, you know, your experience was at OMB.
1: Well, you know, as a recruiter, and when I talk to people, like there has to be a motivation for them to leave. Right. And, 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 or there has to be a motivation for them to stay. And so when people are happy, they're like, they appreciate that I speak to them, but they're like, no, I, I'm good. So I think the the main reason that I stayed at OMB and don't get me wrong. I had people approach me over that 10 year, 11 year period about going elsewhere. And I, I just, there were they gave me what I needed, uh, and Peter pushed me, and, and so did other people like Bruce. But there was just so much to be done, and there was so much opportunity within that organization. You know, keep in mind, I worked there for, like I said, eleven years. I probably worked in seven or eight different restaurants and before I even became a director and oversaw seven restaurants. Right. So you have to keep your people engaged, and and that can be done through education, autonomy, uh, trust, and just give them your time.
0: Right. So how important is salary? Because you know, when I hear we hear so much about labor shortages today, and I hear a lot of people saying, well, your salary and the you know, the money that you're making isn't always the number one factor why people stay with the company. And yet on the opposite side of that, you hear people saying, I need more money, cost of living is high, inflation is is really out of whack these days. It's it's expensive to live in Toronto. How important do you think? money is for people in their decision to stay with the company?
1: Well, um, unfortunately, in these, you know, inflammatory times, money is more important now than ever. And it wasn't it wasn't so much that way five years ago or 10 years ago, when I started this company or started my company, but it is now. Uh, Often, More often than not, the first question I'm asked when I call a candidate, and this could be someone I've 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 had a relationship with for years, Rosanna, is what does the compensation package look like? They want to know before they're going to waste any of their time having a conversation, they're going to want to know. Compensation means three things. It means, okay, what's the guaranteed compensation? Because that's how they pay their bills. How many weeks vacation? Mm -hmm. And the other thing that's the third thing that's most important is how far is it away from home? Right. So the three things that capture people's attention are going to be compensation total compensation, commute time and what's the title so the so the, so the market we're in now um, you can't call someone and say I have the same job for 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 ten percent more than you've been with your current employer for five years that's not going to get them that's not going to get them to move if they're happy right so you have to factor in if companies understand that that the vacation time, the commute, and the title, which includes compensation, is are those are the three most important things that get people to leave or get people to stay. Like I've been doing this for a long time, and I see it very clearly. Um, usually, compensation Rosanna has to be at least ten to fifteen percent more for a candidate to consider making a move in a new role if they're mm-hmm. happily or content in their employment. Because if, if it's not, it's not worth the risk. So, so, someone's making eighty thousand dollars a year, and and someone says, "Well, I have a job over here for eighty-eight or $92,000, By the time you know their, their taxes are taken off and everything else, if they're gainfully employed and have a respectful relationship, and they know that their direct report cares about them and is going to look out for them, uh, they won't, they won't, they won't leave. They will stay. Is they may this- go back, and sorry, they may go back and ask for something more, but they're they're looking. They don't want to leave.
0: Is that a similar thread with younger employees as well, like millennials coming into the industry or now Gen X? I mean, how how important is money for the younger cohort?
1: More important, and it's 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 more important than it was to our generation. Right. Yeah, but they're I mean, more educated. But they're more educated, and they're more they're more savvy, and they're they're better at negotiating. For sure. You and know, I, like in our in our day, like you would you know you wouldn't you'd be afraid to ask for raise, but now they they're bold. You know, and and some people don't like it, but but it's the smart thing to do because if they don't look out for themselves, who's going to?
0: So, how does that affect this industry? Because apart from a few companies that are very successful and can afford that kind of uh, salary range, you know, what happens to independents that maybe aren't able to pay those kinds of salaries to their employees? How do they deal with with the situation?
1: Well, it's a it's a great question. I mean, I think, uh, well, I know that. Really, if you're if you own two or three restaurants and you know don't have a, you're not really going to open more restaurants and you're you're happy with what you have, but you still need to find a chef or a, a general manager, as an example. Versus say a large national, uh, you know, restaurant company. The national restaurant companies that we're aware of, they, they can they can you know I'll call it dangling a carrot, but they certainly can offer growth and opportunity to move up. From a, a, a manager to a GM, or a sous chef to a chef to a regional chef, small restaurant owners are—they um, own two or three restaurants. They can't—they don't have that—they don't have that option. They can't—they can't offer that, and they certainly shouldn't be misleading people to, to, in, in telling them that there are opportunities. And unfortunately, that happens, right? right. Um, and, and it shouldn't. Uh, I see it all the time. So. I always tell this, I actually have a meeting uh, out of the office this morning with someone here in Victoria about that. Uh, they need a chef and they own one restaurant uh, and a few other businesses. And, I, and I'm going to make it clear that if you're an independent operator that owns a couple of restaurants with no opportunity for growth for that employee, but you want someone that's going to be with you for three, four five years, you have to pay more than, say, a national company. Because right. you you can't offer a promotion, which promotion is more money. You have to pay them more. You have to offer them more in the way of vacation. You have to offer them more in terms of compensation because what else can you offer them? Right. So, you know, if you want to keep people or you want to recruit those people, you have to make sure that you're offering a, a, a compensation package that's going to attract them or keep them.
0: Makes sense. So Scott, when you look at some of the companies that you worked with in the past, you know OMB and Earls notably, um, those are both two companies that had strong cultures, you know um, and, and they established they, they spent a lot of time on on their culture. How important is company or corporate culture in, um, in, allow, in, in wanting people to stay with the company or wanting people to go and work for that company. And how do you establish that kind of culture if you're a smaller player? And don't know where what that actually means because right. a lot of people don't know what does culture mean right
1: yeah so it's like how do you define a culture to me you know i i was fortunate enough for the the bulk of my leadership career of working at earls and OMB. you know um i define culture as the character and personality of an organization it's a simple you know comment but uh, it's really driven. It's it's driven good or bad by the senior leadership of the organization. Rosanna, I mean, you know, you see it all the time. Is that you know, a company that's run, uh, a company that's run by a strong leader that's ethical and that wants to do things the right way will have a positive effect on the culture because that culture is driven by either the ownership or the senior leadership. Um, culture is extremely important in our industry. Extremely important because you're guest facing. Uh, and it has a huge impact on the success or failure of any company. And we, 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 we can see that in industries, um, in our industry, from whether, it doesn't matter where it is in Canada. Um, you know, I was, like I said, I was fortunate enough to work at Earl's and OMB. b Now, while their cultures were very different, they both had strong and well-defined cultures. So if you look at, you know, both of them, their success is evident. And neither would have been able to attain that success without a very strong culture. So if you look at Earl's, right? When I started at Earl's in '93, they had about 24, 25 restaurants in Western Canada. So from Manitoba, spread across Manitoba through to BC. Now Earl's, if you look at the fuller restaurants, I mean, they own different brands, but just Earl's alone has 70 restaurants in Canada and the U.S., so you can't you can't achieve that scale without one strong culture, the ability to hire and develop the right people, and, and high levels of retention. You can't do it; it's impossible. Um, when I started at OMB Rosanna in two thousand, they had four restaurants. There was Jump, Auberge, Canoe, and Biff's. Biff's had I just opened. And now, if you look at OMB, if you count their restaurants and their event spaces, there are thirty plus restaurants and event spaces across four provinces. So if you don't have a bench and, and, and people that are willing and loyal to, to come along with you, uh, it, it, you can't make that happen, it's impossible. So the cultures is what, the culture and creating pride and looking after people and making sure that they have opportunity within that organization. I remember Peter saying to me once and I had a meeting with him, he said, I said, why do you keep why do you keep opening more restaurants? Because Peter was tireless, right? And you, I just never understood it. And the risk, like to have that level mm-hmm. of like the stomach for that risk, And he looked at me and he said, you know what, if I don't keep opening restaurants and I don't, and I'm sure there was more than one reason, but he just said, if I don't keep opening restaurants uh, and keep growing, I'm going to, people like you aren't going to stay. Right. You know, the the Jarrett's or the Bruce's or or whoever, like they're, you know, they're not going to stay. They're going to move on. Opportunity for growth. Yeah. And so they want to grow. So if, if you're not going to provide that opportunity in your culture for people to grow, and it doesn't always have to be opening more restaurants. It could be educational opportunities. It could be things in their personal life, but if you're not going to give them that opportunity, they're going to leave.
0: So Scott, we're talking about culture and, and, you know, how to establish a good culture. The industry, especially over the last few years with the pandemic has been accused of having toxic culture, you know, where you have temperamental chefs in the kitchen, where you have the long hours, where you have sometimes verbal abuse and other abuse um that has been a really constant theme that we've heard over the last 3 years through the pandemic. I think there's more being made today to get rid of that toxic culture and I think more companies are working to improve that. But there's still some of that toxicity going on. How how do we as an industry improve that because for people to want to stay and work and have a vibrant industry, I think that has to be eliminated almost completely overnight, and that's a hard thing to do. What does the industry need to do to get rid of that toxicity?
1: Well, I mean, our industry's people, like you know, the old saying, "It's we've heard it a, a lot," is like people don't quit jobs; they quit bosses, and then, and that's true. Um, when people call me and they need they want to make a change, it's not because. It's not because they can't do the work. It's because there's a relationship that's fallen apart or there's a lack of trust or they, someone's broken their trust. Now, keep in mind, it's that one person's mentality, but what what I would, the suggestions or advice that I would do to give to to improve this to leaders and uh, restaurant owners or senior leadership is because I'm going by what people tell me. And I talk to people in confidence and you know, if you talk to 100 or 200 people over at a certain time and you hear the same things over and over, there's. Clearly some truth to it. So be consistent and honest with your communication with people in terms of what you say and how often you say it. That's really important. That's one of the biggest problems that we, is people, leaders don't communicate with their people consistently and accurately. You got to build trust with them and that takes time. So you got to work at it. But what I would tell people to do is communicate to your high potential employees. You know, they need to know what their career path can be. Or what the potential is, what their next role might be if they perform in the current role, and what they achieve in what what the, the accretive bond goals are, and what they achieve. That was one of the reasons why I stayed at my two employers so long, and a lot of my colleagues did, was because you knew what you're doing now. You had someone that was mentoring you, and you knew where you could go because that was communicated to you, and it was achievable, and it was consistent. Um, so those senior leaders or the people in the decision-making capacity, they need to be sitting with their, they need to identify who their high potential people are and they need to do it and have one-on-ones with them at least once a month, if not twice a month. Some people do it once a week. It's like a progress report. So you got to provide them with that information. And if you, and if you don't um, then they don't know where they stand. Right. Right. And and you can't assume um, that, that they um, don't, that they know because they don't right. Um, a couple of quick other things too is you know you know if you if you're like I said if you're a smaller company you've got to be able to provide a compensation package and, and provide things that are gonna help keep that going because you can't offer them growth. Uh, but don't dangle carrot don't dangle carrots in promises that you can't deliver on, you can't keep because if you do that then they're gonna feel like that they can't trust you and, and you're misled they're, or they were misled. Um, if you treat them well, they won't leave, and they're they're going to be really difficult to um, to, to recruit out. But typically, when toxic cultures happen, it, it's usually related to certain people in leadership roles. And in my experience,
0: how does mental health and wellness play into it? I know we hear a lot more about that today. Are candidates that are leaving companies does that come up in their discussion with you when they're looking for? a new job, you know, that, um, the stress levels or whether it's toxicity or working to, you know, long hours, does that factor into their decision?
1: Yes. Yeah, it absolutely does. It's again, it's, 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 it's a trust and consistency, um, it, 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 a trust and consistency situation. Like, can I share, like, you know, can I share a quick story that came up the other yeah. day with the candidate? So there's this young lady, um, and she, she's a manager and she was hired a year ago at a company out here in BC, and she was hired as a uh, as a day as a an assistant general manager. But she works Monday to she was hired on the premise of a Monday to Friday uh, job because she's a single parent and she's got responsibilities outside of work with her two young kids. Um, the GM that hired her uh, had agreed that that was the contract. Well, last week uh, the senior leadership came to her and told her. Um, that she is no longer getting her Monday to Friday day contract. She's going to go Tuesday to Saturday, working from twelve to ten.
0: Oh wow! They just changed that dramatically.
1: Yeah, and basically, and, and, and told her that if she doesn't like it, go find another job. Wow. That happens a lot.
0: So she's going to find another job.
1: <laughs> well, she's forced in, you know, she's forced into a position she doesn't want to be in, and she in, in in what she was hired to do has been taken away from her. So there's a perfect example of someone that. If I was in that position, I'd just leave the industry. For sure. Because I'd be be so afraid that if I went somewhere else, that would happen to me again. So so I think that there's a perfect example of mental health. It's like if you don't think that you're going to, if your employer is not going to provide you with what they said they were going to provide you with, um, why is that hard to sleep at night? Especially as a single parent. And there are a fair amount of single parents in our industry that try to make it work, right?
0: So you hear a lot of these stories about the industry. I mean, that's only one example, but
1: that's, that's one example of many, but yeah. So, so I think, you know, in terms of, um, you know, talking about mental health and, and 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 don't get me wrong, a lot of companies have gotten better over the pandemic because they've been forced into the situation and some have done it willing more willingly than others, but um, you know, you really have to make sure that like a couple other things that are really important when you talk about mental health and stress is like, the barrier to entry, in my in my opinion, to become a manager in the restaurant in, in food and beverage operations is, is just too low. Um, for example, you know, and I can include myself to a certain degree in this category, is, yeah, people don't realize this probably, that most restaurant managers see almost no or very little training. Like 9 out of 10, when they get into the first leadership role, um, their training is, is minimal at best. So it's no wonder they get frustrated and decide I'm going to leave because they don't really know what they're doing and they're working 55, 60 hours a week, right? The other thing I'd like to mention, I think, that is is sort of a taboo topic and I think it's talked about within the industry is because you're talking about mental health and how to sort of, how to right that ship, right? So I'll give you an example of something that's a significant issue and perhaps you've heard about it is guests guests and their disrespectful behavior on many levels. It's not acceptable,
0: Especially right. during the last three years, right?
1: Well, it's always been there. It's always been there. And and no one's been willing to do anything like restaurant companies and owners. And I understand um, because I worked in companies where we were afraid of the guests. So managing, managers and owners of restaurant companies or, or hotels or whatever are are too afraid to hold guests accountable for their bad behavior. Right. So again, something as simple as like not showing up for restaurant reservations and they don't call to cancel. I I really believe that restaurants should do what hotels and airlines do. If you don't cancel your reservation within 24 hours or whatever, whatever they do, you charge them a certain amount of money. Like it's a it's a business. And and if if you're charging someone $80 to not show up for a reservation, some of that money should be giving should be given to the staff. Because that person's going to lose revenue.
0: That makes sense. It's that mentality of the customer is always right, right? Even when they're not. Um. Well, managers
1: and staff, I hear this a lot, As managers and staff are verbally and sometimes physically abused by guests. Companies, are, again, are afraid of bad online reviews and they won't stand up to guests. I, I know I have friends that, that, that are run hotels and restaurant companies or restaurants and they're they're, they're definitely afraid of it. And so they tolerate behavior that they normally wouldn't tolerate it. So if you want to Help reduce staff turnover at every level, whether it be managers or staff. Those those senior leaders or um, the managers they need to stick up for the hourly staff or the and the leaders because it, 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 a lot of times it's just the the, the staff or the leaders in those, that are in those restaurants and their front line with guests. They just need to know someone above them, whether it's the, it's the GM or someone them. that has their back. You have yeah. their back, and that you're going to defend them.
0: It's interesting. I was I can't remember where I was recently, but a couple of businesses It might have been a bank or something like that. But there was a sign at the uh, at the front saying um, we will not tolerate bad behavior from customers, something to that effect. And I thought, wow, I've never seen that in the past, but I've seen it now two or three times in the last month. I've seen it. it for a lot of
1: people. I've seen it twice. I've seen it. I go back and forth on a float plane harbor between Victoria and Vancouver. It's, it's within, it's within their building. And I actually saw it at a doctor's office. Uh, I had to go see a specialist and again, it was right there on the, on the wall. Right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, so imagine being in a restaurant, it's probably 10 times worse in terms of volume sure. and, and, you know, people have been drinking, yeah. uh, etc. etc. So those are some, those are some, uh, some ideas that people should consider.
0: Those are great. Um, Thank you for sharing.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, Scott, we um, we talked earlier about educational institutes and you said how important it was for companies to, to have good relationships with the schools, whether it's high schools or colleges. Um, what can an educational institutes and operators do differently to ensure that more students are actually entering the industry and want to spend time in hospitality as opposed to other fields? Um, because I, I hear a lot from schools these days that they're also changing their approaches quite significantly to try to lure more students in. Um, so what do you think are some some little things that can be done on that end to make sure this industry is viable?
1: You know, there's no question we need to start, we need a much stronger pipeline of people going forward that's really been depleted over the last 10 or 15 years. In my opinion, one, one piece I would add to this, this question would be, the provincial governments in each province. Uh, I'd like to see the government, I'd like to see some government involvement, potentially by way of increased student loans or grants to attend reputable colleges with strong histories of producing graduates ready to work in hospitality operations. So like, I'll give you a few examples of colleges, George Brown, right? Especially in culinary centennial, Humber, you know, those are the three that come to mind in Ontario that I I think about. Um, you know, colleges have have a much uh, higher we call it placement rate of people graduating, going into operations than say the universities do, right? Um, you know, I'm not certainly not speaking ill of, of the universities like welfare Ryerson, but it's just a fact. Now, keep in mind too, that colleges have 10 times the enrollment on an annual basis of a university educational system because of the cost, right? Mm-hmm. Literally a fraction of the cost. Um, so if you factor in that they have 10 times the enrollment, at a college and they it's a quarter of, or, or a third of the cost. Uh, to me I think the government needs to step in and say okay if you need a loan and you're a student, especially with all these new people immigrating to Canada and they're going to be looking for career choices if they can go into a, a George Brown or Humber and you know they need some some assistance it's like well you know there should be loan forgiveness at the end. Uh, so if, if you you know over a two year and and, and, it, and it helps too Rosanna that it's a two-year program. Right. So then you get you get half of your loan forgiven if you stay in operations for, say, three years, like a tuition reimbursement through your tax return after three years in the industry. And if they decide to leave after that and go do something else, then that's fine. But if we can get some momentum in that space uh, in in the um you know, in in, through the educational system, that's some government help, I really think you're going to see enrollments go up. And I think ultimately, the operators or the businesses will benefit from that.
0: That sounds like some great ideas there. Um, As a way to wind down, because we're almost reaching our time. I know that everybody's concerned, obviously, about the labor shortages and the lack of people coming into the industry. In your specific career, that's got to be a big worry for you as a recruiter. Um, and it must be causing some sleepless nights for you. Um, what what do you see as, um, you know, what maybe innovation can be can be had in these areas to to create apart from what we've just talked to? Is there anything else that can be done to attract more people so that the industry does remain viable?
1: You mean like in terms of innovation around recruitment strategies for the rest
0: yeah. industry? Yeah.
1: You know, this may not this isn't the most exciting thing to bring up, but um, you know, I've already talked about a few things around like identifying. You know, and I, I've learned this through working for a couple of really strong, reputable companies when I was in operations. But you have to you have to start to identify to to, to get people into the industry. And keep the people into the industry. I don't have a percentage of, let's say, for every hundred people that come into the industry in, in a restaurant setting, in, in the kitchen or the front, how many are gone, you know, uh, in a year or whatever. But most turnover rates are about eighty percent. But and then they, and they 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 don't they see it as a stopgap measure. So I think sure. one of the things that could be done is one um, start to continue to see identify those talented leaders and, and, and make sure that you really pay attention and offer them time and make your job look attractive. One of the biggest things that, um, that keeps people away from leadership is they see how long and how many hours these managers work. And they're like, no, no want to. I don't. Yeah. So so you have to make your job look attractive. I think that's really important. Um and if the managers always look tired and beat up and, and, and work six days a week, well, then We're not helping, no one's helping themselves. But the other one I see, you know, I think any hospitality business that has 300 employees or more, because there's a cost associated with this, is they should invest in a simple ATS system, Rosanna. So, like an applicant tracking system. What companies, and I know this because I talk to my clients, is they don't save candidate information, resumes, interview notes of people that they've talked to. So, I'll give you an example. Let's say, You know, you talk to three or four managers and for whatever reason, there's a couple of really good ones that, you know, in January of 2023 that you couldn't hire and they took another job. What they don't do is they don't have an ATS system to follow up on these people. So what they can't do is in six months, give them a call. Right. Like, this is what I do. Right. It's like, hey, you know, I have all your information. It's like, hey, Rosanna. Hey, Sally. Hey, Joe. You know, we we met six months ago. Um, You know, what are you up to? How's that new job going? Is it working out? They don't do that. Interesting. That seems like
0: a common sense approach, but they're not doing
1: it. Well, what companies really need to do, whether it's hourly, and it doesn't matter, people are people, is you need to be able to track and save that information somewhere in in a a technological way and have someone manage that system so that you can go back to those great people and flag them and check in with them every three, four months, check in with them every six months. That's what we do. It's not complicated. It's not as complicated as it might seem, but for the Three or four thousand dollars, maybe it wouldn't even be that much. Maybe fifteen hundred dollars a year or one hundred and twenty five dollars a month to to uh, lease or rent some sort of ATS system. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's well worth it.
0: That's a great idea. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So as a, as a way to close off, any last words or any thoughts, um, you know, over the last three years, I think everybody's world has changed so dramatically. Any last parting shots on lessons learned during this time for you specifically?
1: Uh, yeah, uh, taking people less for granted and uh, just take people less for granted and be more aware of what's going on with them. You know, having conversations with people and actually just listening, just being a better listener and asking better questions. That, that's pretty much it. Most people just, you know, when I ask, People, what's, who, who's the best boss you've ever had and who was able to get the best out of you? The most common answer is they were available to me and they gave me their time and they listened.
0: And that's such a simple thing, right, Scott, that everybody can do without putting a lot of time and, and money into it.
1: I was going to say it doesn't cost anything. Exactly. There's no, there's exactly. no financial cost to it.
0: Well, that's great advice. And on that note, um, I want to thank you for your time sharing that with us today. I know you're busy and you're looking for candidates to fill these jobs that are out there. So I know that's a big, ta- daunting task. So thank you so much for sharing. And good luck with the rebranding and, um, and hope to see you soon somewhere.
1: Thank you for the opportunity. Helena. Have a good day.
0: All right, you too. Bye-bye. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of the Table Talk Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love for you to rate and review our show. Also, make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button. For additional resources related to today's episode, please visit our website, foodserviceandhospitality.com. Until next time.